What an amazing lyric. Brand new to me as of right now, we can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. Would you pray with me, please, this morning? God in the stillness. I thank you that we can always run to you, that you don't have office hours, that you don't have times when you're, when you're sick or you're away or you're on vacation. But you are always there for us. And not only that, you come looking for us. We don't have to search for you. I thank you so much that you are the lover of our souls, that you, as we have just sung, are the only one who can satisfy, you are the only one who can fill that God-shaped hole within each of us. And you have come to do that through the person of your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for this time of, of musical worship that we've just had. I thank you for the way it has nourished our souls I pray now that as we look into your word, that you would breathe, that you would speak loud and clear to each of us. May our hearts and minds be receptive to whatever it is you have for us this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, let's do that again. And all God's people said, Amen. It's good to see you this morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Dana. I'm one of the pastors at Cornerstone. I spend most of my time over in Cornwall, but they ship me off to the other two sites when needed. Pastor Gordon has had a week of much-needed vacay, and so he's tagged me in this morning to share a message that God has placed on my heart. If you're taking notes, you will know from hearing me speak before that I'm a titles person, and I like to give options for titles, so pick whichever one you like. This morning's conversation has two. The first one is A Long Way from Eden, and if you don't like that one, the second option is A World of Yes with One No. So A Long Way from Eden or A World of Yes with one no. Did you appreciate the ministry of Michaela and the team this morning? If you did, let them know. Fantastic. Fantastic. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, either I almost said the real one, I mean a paper one, or if you have one on your phone, if you want to turn or flip or scroll or whatever you do, to the first book, Genesis chapter 3, we'll be turning there in a few moments. At the risk of sounding like Forrest Gump, my mama said, life's like a box of chocolate. That's the worst southern accent you'll ever hear in your life. But I grew up hearing my mother say this, and I'm going to find out how many of you have ever hung out with my mom. Actions speak louder than... Try that once more. Most of you have heard that. You've been hanging out with my mom. Actions speak louder than... I think that that is one of the things that the Christian statesman and missionary Paul was getting at when upon nearing his death, he encouraged and admonished his young protege, Timothy, and by extension, all of us as Christ followers, to watch our lives and our doctrine carefully. First Timothy 4.16, watch our life 
Our 24-7, pragmatic, the way we live. Watch that. We get in trouble when we don't. Watch our life, but equally, and our doctrine closely. Why would he say that? Because the way a person lives ultimately reflects what they believe to be true. Show me a way a person is living, and I will tell you, regardless what they say with these, what they actually do reflects what they believe to be true. I believe that my mom was right, that actions do speak louder than words, but what we believe shapes what we say and what we do. So up to this point in our doctrine series, we've looked at the Trinity, let me start that again, Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We've explored the legitimacy and authority of the scriptures. Last week, we focused our attention on creation. And this morning, on the heels of last week, we're going to consider the doctrine of the fall of humanity. The fall of humanity. When, when Greg used to worship here consistently, he would always want me to have two or three jokes. And before I ever spoke, he'd say, Dana, have you got any funny ones this morning? There's not a lot of yuck yucks in this morning's talk. The fall of humanity. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I appreciate the lyrics of the hymns, certain hymns that we sing. And I don't believe it's coincidence that one of the most well-known and beloved songs in Western hymnody, at least, is John Newton's Amazing Grace. But despite how familiar that song is, this morning I would suggest that Newton's words are radically revolutionary and actually that they are countercultural to every post-enlightenment heart and mind. In light of that, I am always blown away, especially when I go to a funeral and seeing, being surprised at how many people, regardless of the degree or lack of their faith, they sing with incredible gusto. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a what? Let's say that a little louder. That saved a what? I once was, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Philosopher Thomas Hobbes would have had no issues with Newton's lyric because he defined humans as being solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and one that I can relate to, short. Now, that's a bit of a downer. That's a drag. So in 1699, the third Earl of Shaftesbury, in response to Hobbes, proposed that no, on the contrary, humans are essentially good. To move things further down the track, in 1754, a philosopher by the name of Rousseau would jump on Shaftesbury's coattails He would declare that people in their most natural state are free, are wise, and are good, concluding that people are essentially good and only do bad things when conditioned to do so by their environment. 
That was, a tra- that was a trail that was later picked up by educators like John Dewey, philosophers like B.F. Skinner, who insisted then, based on Rousseau, that human beings are born a blank slate. Hence, whatever they, whatever we become, is determined by external influences only. I would contend that, generally speaking, this perspective has been broadly accepted and promoted as the explanation of and justification for every type of human behavior, good, bad, and ugly. Unfortunately, but unsurprisingly, without giving any consideration to what the Word of God says. Because in Job 15, Eliphaz rhetorically asks Job, Can any mortal be pure? Can anyone that is born of a woman be just? In Psalm 51 and 5 we read, I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. God himself speaking in Genesis chapter 8 says this, Every single thing that humans think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. Now, if we believe these verses to be true, it poses a significant problem. How do we reconcile the apparent Jekyll and Hyde truth that those who have been created by God as a little lower than the angels are the same creatures who are governed by what the novelist Joseph Comrade memorably called a heart of darkness. And I get the paradox. When placed alongside the incredible gains and advances that humans have achieved down throughout the ages, the idea that I, that you, that we are presently or have ever been a wretch, that we've been lost, that we've been blind, it seems at best highly offensive and at worst intellectually irresponsible. Now post-enlightenment philosophers and the secular propaganda, propaganda machine have been tremendously successful in convincing us that this idea of innate sinfulness is archaic and we'd all be much better off just forgetting about that. That's old-fashioned. That's old-school. I find it interesting how naturally this has bled into contemporary culture. Three days ago, I was driving my son to school. He's 10 years old. And our ears and our minds were bombarded with a catchy tune, but radically unbiblical message Several years ago, some of you may know the Canadian rock band Our Lady Peace. The song came on the radio and the chorus just intoned, We are, we are all innocent. We are all innocent. We are, we are, are. Which rolls off the tongue pretty easily and may let a few of us sleep a little easier at night, but it's next to impossible to integrate with all the obvious contradictions and polarities between light and darkness, good and evil, that make up the world as we know it. Why do humans, 
who have a capacity of excellence, vir- excellence, virtue, and rational thought often engage in such despicable, despondent, and irrational behavior. If happiness is really our goal, why do we act and think in such a manner that does not bring about happiness? Or as the Apostle Paul said, why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why don't I do the things I know I should do? Oh, wretched man that I am. So if human beings are inherently good, how do we explain a world in which at this very moment, while you and I are safely and freely worshiping God, there are people on this planet just like you and I, who are being tortured and killed for doing the same thing by people just like you and I. At this very moment, people just like you and I are being threatened, killed, and treated as lesser thans because of things like their age, their gender, their social standing, and the color of their skin by people just like you and I. At this very moment, There are hundreds of thousands of people just like you and I who do not have a safe place that they can call home. At this very moment, girls, boys, women, and men of all ages, just like you and I, just like our kids and grandkids are being kidnapped and sold as slaves by people just like you and I. It's not the thing of history. It's going on now. At this very moment, Hundreds of thousands of people, just like you and I, are starving to death. I told you there weren't going to be a lot of yuck-yucks this morning. While we sit here, thousands of humans, just like you and I, are killing and being killed in more than 40 wars that are going on right now around our planet. This very moment, Girls and boys and women and men are being physically, mentally, and sexually abused by those in positions of power. Statistics suggest that in a group of this size this morning, some of you have been victims of that atrocity. And that is here on PEI, where we have laughingly, in my mind, been dubbed by island tourism as the gentle island. I bet they didn't ask immigrants or minorities or the homeless how gentle our island is. And these are just a few of the atrocities that we commit against one another. The scientist E.O. Wilson notes that we have, I love the way he writes, we have all by our wobbly-headed selves altered Earth's atmosphere and climate away from the norm. We have spread thousands of toxic chemicals worldwide. We've appropriated 40% of the solar energy available for photosynthesis. We've converted almost all of the easily arable land. We've dammed most of the rivers, raised the sea level, and now we are close to running out of fresh water. Or as Joni Mitchell sings, we've paved paradise and we've put up a parking lot. The question remains, if God made the world so good like we learned last week, 
How is it that things seem to be so bad so much of the time? How did we get so far from Eden? I would ask if you would stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed, has he really, has he actually said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman replied to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. That's interesting. God did never say to them, You can't touch it. They just said, don't eat it. But, but Eve said, you shall not touch it, you shall not eat of it, or you will die. And then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. You will know good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And we've been trying to make coverings ever since. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Before the serpent slithered up to Eve, God had done some pretty mind-blowing things. He made the world. He made humans. He placed them in a tropical paradise. He had established a world of yes with only one no. Just out of curiosity, without a showing of hands, how many of you have ever walked by a wet paint do not touch sign? (laughs) A world of yes with only one no. But that no is critical. Because in it we see that even in a climate, even in an arena of perfection, God still had boundaries and parameters that he expected his creation to live within. So enter the protagonist, serpent, the accuser, Satan, the devil. The devil was a created being just like Adam and Eve. He was created to serve God. As an angel, but because of pride, he rebelled. He became obsessed with doing everything that God hates. In John 10, when referring to the devil, Jesus tells us that the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he's here for. Two chapters earlier, after calling the devil a murderer, Jesus says this about him. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of who he is, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when we hear this, we should know that whatever Satan is going to say to Eve, 
It's not going to benefit her or humanity or glorify God in any way. But it will be to everyone's folly. Did God really say? Satan is perfectly aware of God's instructions. He wastes no time punching holes in them. The method behind his madness is the conviction that if he can get Eve to doubt the word of God, it's almost a sure thing that she'll then doubt the person of God. At its most fundamental origin, the root of all sin is unbelief. So like an effective defense attorney, the accuser's job is little more than raising a reasonable doubt, just a sliver of a chance that God might be fudging the truth. Sin never just happens. People sin because somewhere in our minds we conclude that God's word is not fully trustworthy and if what he says can't be trusted, then neither can he. Did God really say? And once he feels Eve nibbling on the hook that he's dangled before her, Satan throws all subtlety to the wind and he goes for the jugular. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And so Satan boldly tells Eve that she can blow through God's instructions without any repercussions. Historically, this lie has been the serpent's calling card. Human history is the record of people lying and stealing and being proud and unloving and unkind and graceless, envious, greedy, sexually immoral, eating from any number of forbidden trees, hoping that And in many cases, believing that it can be done consequence-free. That God or society won't do anything about it. It's the lie that says we can freely violate God's ways and not face any judgment. Lie number one, the suggestion or expectation that we can disobey God with little or no consequences. Lie number two, that God himself is a liar. Lie number three, that sin will actually result in good. In Eve's case, it was becoming like God. Verse five, in the day you eat of it, said the serpent, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, you've got to admit, that's a pretty enticing carrot. That just from eating of a tree, you'll become like the creator of the universe. Just from eating of a tree, you'll become like the one who formed her from her husband's rib. Just from eating of a tree, you'll become like the one who created her husband from the dust of the ground. That is heady stuff. Who wouldn't want that type of intelligence, creative expression, power, authority, autonomy? As C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, that they could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, that they could be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come the long, 
terrible story of a people trying to find something other than God that will make them, us, happy. The accuser conveniently failed to mention that outside of God's grace, the human will is not interested in submitting to God. Outside of God's grace, humans do not find joy and fulfillment in bending their heart and their knee to the Lord. Outside of God's grace, the human will does not delight in God because it wants to be God. Augustine rightly evaluated humans when saying our hearts are turned inward upon themselves. Our inward turned hearts, wherein self-love and self-want trump everything else, result in us wanting to be more than what God has created to be, by which we wrongly define freedom as being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, with whomever we want. My three-year-old, my well, he's ten now, but when he was three, I will for ne- never forget how stark it was when he looked at his mother and I and said, you're not the boss of me. Which, okay, you're three, son, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. But when you're 43 and 53 and 63, our world is living under that mantra. You're not the boss of me. It's loudly echoed in our pop songs. Listen, I am Frank Sinatra's probably biggest fan in the world. But do you realize what he was saying when he proudly sang, I did it my way? And if you know anything about Sinatra's life, tragically, he did. And it ain't nothing to brag about. Bon Jovi sings, it's my life. Fleetwood Mac sings, you can go your own way. Tears to fears sing, everybody wants to rule the world. The forked tongue has been incredibly successful when promoting rebellion as the path to freedom. What Satan failed to tell Eve was that no human being can ever know good and evil the way that God does. God knows everything and he is holy which means that he has never, nor will he ever, know evil from personal experience. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 reads, He became sin who what? Knew no sin. God knows evil like a doctor knows cancer. He fully understands it, but it's totally outside of himself. Jackie Perry Hill says that by sinning, we become inherently unlike God because evil is no longer something over there. Instead, it's personal and internal. When and as Adam and Eve, and by extension, every human being disobey God's commands, when we set ourselves up as our own sovereign, our own judge and jury, 
autonomous and self-sufficient. We know cancer as a patient. Contrary to popular belief, we are not the physician. We're the ones who are sick. Adam and Eve caved to the serpent's lies, and the rest, as they say, is history. Romans 5 and 12 says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned. All fall short of God's glorious standard. And in case you're sitting there sufficiently bummed out now and wondering why you came to church to feel great, you should be asking the question, why does the doctrine of the fall matter? So I'm going to give you five reasons. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, and this is not in order of their importance, but I'm going to share five reasons why the doctrine of the fall is so important. Firstly, The doctrine of the fall demonstrates that contrary to what the serpent and his spin doctors say, God's boundaries are not because he's a cosmic killjoy who wants to hold us down and hold us back. He has boundaries in place because he loves us and wants to save us from a boatload of hurt. If you're a parent, you know this to be true. God did not forbid the eating of an arbitrary fruit, but what the fruit symbolized. To eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a rejection of God as the all-wise, all-caring Father who knows what is best for us. It's not all that dissimilar to the newly liberated children of Israel wanting a king so they could be like the surrounding nations. God's mandate was simply his best effort to deter the creature from trying to exchange roles with the creator. God was simply saying, for your own sake, don't try and dethrone me. Don't try and take my place. Don't try and fill my shoes. You can't do it. Trust me to fill your life with joy and meaning and purpose, and fulfillment. Second, the doctrine of the fall warns us to have our ears and eyes on constant alert for the serpent and his lies. 1 Peter 5 and 8 encourages us, be sober, be vigilant, Because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. The snake has grown legs. The devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I am so tired of year after year seeing family and friends who pay a little too much attention to the voice of the serpent and not enough attention to the voice of the Savior. I 
As such, church, as such, sisters and brothers, we cannot afford to let our guard down. We should constantly and urgently ask our Heavenly Father to give us discernment. To whom are we lending our ears? The serpent or the Savior? Thirdly, when understood in its gravity, the doctrine of the fall will inevitably make us more gracious and less judgmental towards other people. The doctrine of the fall will inevitably make us more gracious and less judgmental towards other people. The doctrine requires a countercultural humility, first to confess and then to live out of the reality that every single one of us are fallen and broken. And for some reason, the longer we go to church, we forget this. Every single part of our being is tainted and marred by sin. As such, every single one of us are in desperate need of a Savior. We're all in the same boat. An old southern gospel song said, the ground is level at Calvary. All the king's horses and all the king's men can't put Humpty together again. But aren't you glad that the king can? Fourthly, the doctrine of the fall will compel the Christ follower to consistently lean into the presence of the Holy Spirit, to live in and through us and overcome the darkness with light. That's what he's there for. And finally, the doctrine of the fall will missionally compel the Christ follower to both pray and strive, not one or the other, both pray and strive for God's shalom, his peace, to reign on earth. John Eldridge rightly says that our enemy is the great divider. His most poisonous work takes place at the level of fragmentation, dividing families, churches, breeding racial and religious hatred. He uses pain and suffering to create deep divisions within our own beings. In the beginning of our tragic story, he slithers into Eden and divides humanity from God, from one another, and from the earth itself. As such, the Christ follower will do everything in our means to bring together what sin is intent on ripping apart. We will call evil for what it is. We will expose it to the light we will pray and work for justice. We will give ourselves away that others might see life the way God intends it to be lived. We will pray, God, how do you want to best use me in bringing about your kingdom and your will on earth as it is in heaven? I'm going to ask Michaela and the band to come back. They're going to sing a song that leads us into communion. So my favorite part of the story isn't anything that I've shared. 
That's the reality of where things are at, but it doesn't end there. My favorite part of the story is, as he always does, and as he did then, God came looking for his kids. Even after they'd done wrong, God comes looking for his children. And he calls them by name. And he calls them to account. And then extends to them and to all who are repentant his mercy and his grace. Praise the Lord. And so before we observe communion, Michaela and the team are going to lead us in a song that remind us that all of our hope, if we have any... Oh, my soul, the places that people are putting their hope. All of our hope is solely placed in the one who knew no sin, that became sin for us. Why? That we might become his righteousness. Would you stand as we sing together?